the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. 570 WTBN Pinellas Park. Online at letstalkfaith.com. A service of the Salem Media Group. Portions of this hour have been pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. Odyssey. The following program was pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. Up next is Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. I say that Mordecai's attitude had absolutely nothing to do with God at all. Since when did Mordecai concern himself with the glory of God? If he was so concerned with the glory of God, why wasn't he back in the city of God, back in Jerusalem? He could have been back there. He should have been back there. The man never mentions God's name. He never mentions the temple. He never mentions the the city of Jerusalem. He never mentions the things that are precious to the Old Testament redeemed Jew. It's very easy sometimes to disguise our real motives by pinning our actions to some lofty-sounding ideals. Henry VIII had been married to his wife Catherine for 15 years when he seemed to suddenly have a change of heart toward her. The years had passed and she had borne him no son, so he claimed that he had concerns over the validity of their marriage. It seems that his concerns were further motivated by his infatuation with a young woman named Anne Boleyn. Henry decided that he had been morally wrong in marrying her since she was the widow of his brother, so he pressed for an annulment or a divorce from Catherine. Since the Pope would not agree that Henry had good grounds for divorce, Henry sought to separate from Rome and be free of the Pope's authority. He sometimes borrowed from the teachings of the Reformers, claiming that the Pope's authority was unscriptural and should be ended. Henry made these claims even while he sought to replace the Pope's authority with his own form of absolute rule over the Church of England. In the end, after manipulating and intimidating everyone he could, Henry VIII gained freedom from the Church of Rome, divorced his wife, and married Anne Boleyn. We welcome you to today's edition of Verse by Verse in our continuing study in the Book of Esther. Our teacher is Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. In our last broadcast, we met Haman, the great villain in this story. Today, we will begin to see more clearly how he came to despise the people of Israel with such intensity. Sadly, the sinful attitude of one single Jew fed the flames of hatred in Haman's heart. The excuse Mordecai gave for not bowing to Haman may sound to us to have some merit, but what he really felt in his heart was stubborn pride. His answer smacks of the same kind of false piety found in the professed claims of Henry VIII in his desire to divorce his wife. Yet, in the midst of all this sinful pride and stubbornness, God was making certain that his purposes would still be fulfilled. Let's listen now as Steve explains. That's what makes you see the Christian life so exciting. God uses the little things in life to to turn out for his glory. The mundane, simple things. You know, there are very few big things in life. I mean, I hope you realize that. Big things are, are getting married, having children, getting a new job, moving to a new home. You know, th- those are the big things. But most of life is made up of mundane, simple, 
ordinary, run-of-the-mill events. But that's what God uses. And that's why the Christian life is an adventure. Because God is not divorced from those situations. In fact, God, in his own sovereign plan, and I don't understand how he does it, but he's working it all out for his glory. So that's how the, in the book of Esther, the attempt to, to kill the king was working. The whole providence of God in preserving Israel hinges upon Mordecai, a simple Jew, sitting at the king's gate, overhearing a very ordinary, common plot to, destroy, to, to kill the king. Now let's look at the anger of Haman. Because beginning in chapter 3, we meet Haman, and he is the bad guy. He's the villain. Verse 1 says this, After these events, King Ahasuerus, or we know him as Xerxes, promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and established him in authority all over, over all the princes who were with him. A number of years have passed now since Esther has become queen. You can see that in chapter 2, verse 16, and just comparing chapter 3, verse 7, number of years have passed. This is not a matter of week or weeks or days, number of years. And Xerxes' main man in Persia now at this time is a man by the name of, of Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite. He just sounds evil, doesn't he? I mean, Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite. Who would name their son that? He name sounds bad. Even if you didn't know anything about him, it just, just sounds evil. I want you to understand that the term Agagite has caused uh, some scholars, in fact many scholars, to believe that Haman was a descendant of King Agag, who the, was in the Old Testament the Amalekite king, who the, uh, the King Saul was told to destroy all of the Amalekites, and he did not destroy them. And some believe that Haman is a direct descendant of this king and that God is going to accomplish his pur purpose in, in wiping him out and, and using Mordecai uh, when, when Saul was disobedient to him. Uh, I don't think that's, that's the point here. I, I, don't, I don't think that is. In fact, modern uh, archaeology and scholarship has discovered that Agag was the name of a province in the Persian Empire. So probably Haman was, was simply one who was from the province of Agag, and that would make more sense. You know, where a Semitic, a former, or a descendant of a former Semitic king living 600 years before would show up in Persia is, uh, is, is not that probable. The most probable explanation is that he's just someone from the province of Agag. But the point is that Haman was big man on campus in Persia at this time, and he demanded absolute respect. Let's look at verses 2 through 4. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. For so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why are you transgressing the king's command? Now it was when they had spoken daily to him and he would not listen to them that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's reason would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. The point is this. All the king's nobles at the gate bowed down to Haman. Everybody did. That is everybody except one person, and that was Mordecai. And the other men couldn't understand this. Why, why, Mordecai, will you not bow down to Haman? We're all bowing down to him. And Mordecai's response eventually came out that he was a Jew. Now, at first, this sounds real spiritual, doesn't it? Now, I'm a Jew. I don't bow down. I don't worship any man. I just worship God. 
It has led some to believe that, that Mordecai didn't bow down because he didn't want to worship a man. He was so concerned with the glory of God. In fact, about 100 BC, 100 years before the Lord Jesus came into this world, some Jewish writers decided to come up with a prayer that they said expressed the heart of Mordecai. Now, the scriptures don't say this, but I want you to understand this is the thinking of the Jewish people. They had to figure out some way uh, to get Mordecai out of this problem or something like that. So they said this is the prayer that Mordecai prayed. And Mordecai didn't pray this. They said this to sort of justify his actions. You know all things. You know, Lord, that it was not because of insolence or arrogance or vanity that I did this, that I did not bow down before Haman. For I would have been quite willing to have kissed the soles of his feet for Israel's sake. But I did it in order that I might not put the glory of man above the glory of God. I say ridiculous. Ridiculous. I say that Mordecai's attitude had absolutely nothing to do with God at all. Since when did Mordecai concern himself with the glory of God? If he was so concerned with the glory of God, why wasn't he back in the city of God, back in Jerusalem? He could have been back there. He should have been back there. The man never mentions God's name. He never mentions the temple. He never mentions the, the city of Jerusalem. He never mentions the things that are precious to the Old Testament redeemed Jew. Now, Mordecai's not concerned about God at all. And, and what about this, this idea of not falling down and worshiping someone? The custom of falling down before an exalted position was, was not always considered idolatrous. We know from secular history, and we know from biblical history, too, that Persian kings did not set themselves up to be God or gods. Babylonian kings did, and that's why the... The three men in the story of Daniel would not bow down. But Persian kings did not. In fact, in Daniel chapter 6. Now, Daniel, we know, be a godly man. Godly, one of the greatest men that has ever lived. And in Daniel chapter 6, verse 21, we read this. And he's speaking to a Persian king. Then Daniel spoke to and spoke and said to the king, O king, live forever. Now, we're not told that exactly that he bowed down, but you see, here's a form of respect. He's saying to the king, now this is godly Daniel, the Jew, saying to an ungodly Persian Gentile king, O king, live forever. It's the same thing as paying him homage, paying him respect. How about Nehemiah? Nehemiah was a godly man, and uh, Nehemiah comes just a, a few years after Esther. Esther, by the way, chronologically comes out between Ezra chapter 6 and 7. If you want to know where it fits in in history, it's between Ezra chapter 6 and 7. Nehemiah is a little bit after, but the same, same basic time period. And in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 3, we read this. And I said to the king, let the king live forever. Same thing as Daniel. Let the king live forever. Godly man saying to an ungodly king, live forever. Form of respect, certain sense, homage, reverence. When did Mordecai start caring about God's glory? He had no problem instructing Esther to pay homage to the king and, and, and bow down. I mean, obviously she had to do it if the servants had to, had to bow down to Haman. You know that everybody else in the kingdom had to bow down to the, to the king, Especially when Esther first met him and entered his presence. And yet, yet Mordecai's not concerned about that. No, he doesn't care about that. 
And later on, we know this to be, to be, to have to have happened by virtue of his position. He's going to be elevated to one of the top positions, if not the top position in the kingdom. We know that, that later on, Mordecai is going to have to bow down to the king. And I'm certain that he did, not caring a whole lot about, about that kind of thing. Then, then why didn't he bow down to Haman? I'll tell you why. Mordecai says it's because he's a Jew. I think he's right. But I don't think it has anything to do with his religious convictions for Judaism. No, I think it's his national pride. I think it's his national stubborn pride in being a Jew that says, I will not bow down to this pagan Gentile who he probably despised. I think that's, I think that's the answer. I think that's consistent with Mordecai's character. Stubbornness, pride, arrogance. But when Mordecai revealed he was a Jew, and I'm sure he said, look, I'm a Jew. But I think what he meant was that I'm not going to bow down to this pagan. What was the reaction? Look at verses 5 and 6, chapter 3. When Haman saw that Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage to him, Haman was filled with rage. Now, here was another individual, one a Jew, one a Gentile. They're both very similar to each other. Verse 6, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him who the people of Mordecai were, and therefore Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Basically, what this is saying is he wanted to wipe out every Jew that lived. The whole world was under the control of the Persian Empire. So when you're talking about wiping out all the Jews who live in the kingdom, you're talking about wiping out all the Jews in the world. Why such a reaction? Why? The same reason that there was there is such a reaction going on in the Midwest today. Viewpoint from a gun barrel. The same reason that there has been hatred of Jewish people since the calling of Abraham. Why? Behind all anti-Semitism is Satan. It's a supernatural reason. Why does the history of humanity reflect such hatred towards God's ancient people? Now, people hate. I mean, that, that's, that's human nature. There, there are people who hate all kinds of people. There are people who are prejudiced against all kinds of people. But no other people on the face of the earth have taken such hatred and abuse as the Jew. There has to be a reason. If you ask some why, why that reason is, some would say it's because the Jewish nation has rejected Christ. I've heard that. No, that's not the answer. That's not, the, that's, that's not why there's hatred of Jewish people. That's an excuse why there's hatred. And you hear terms like Christ killers and Christ rejectors, and, and people sound very pious when they speak like that. The Crusades and Inquisition sounded pious, but it's, it's really an excuse. No, Romans chapter 10, verse 1 tells us that the Jew is still beloved by God for the Father's sake. And Paul said, my heart's cry and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. No, that's God's attitude towards the Jew. God didn't say they're Christ killers, let's do away with them. No, no, God doesn't say that. Others have said it's because of their strange religion. In fact, Haman's going to pull that too. Haman's going to say that. They're strange, and you'll see this next time. But some say it's because of their strange religion. They're they're different. They're aloof. We can't figure them out. They stick to to themselves, and that's that's why people hate them. No, that's just an excuse, too. Others have said their character is abrasive. Just like any people, some are, some aren't. Some have said, well, well, it's abrasive. They're, they're obnoxious, and that's why. But that's not the reason. 
for anti-Semitism. Others have said, as, as these are saying in this editorial, it's because of their excessive wealth, their great political influence. They want to control our nation, and they've come up with terms like the Illuminati and, and other things. There's a whole thing called the Protocols of Zion and, and all kinds of, of things that people have imagined that there is a conspiracy of Jewish people somewhere. Who knows where? We don't know. But somewhere, they say, there are Jewish people just trying to, to control all the banks and all the monies and all the things. And Well, this is the kind of stuff that comes out of that thinking. Marv Rosenthal has said this, and I thought it was just great to quote. Marv says this concerning all these kinds of reasons that people give. He said, at best, they are inadequate excuses and certainly not defensible answers. But he says, the only accurate explanation for anti-Semitism is to be found in the fact that God chose Israel through her greatest son to be the instrument for universal blessing and ultimate defeat of Satan, to retaliate. The secret purpose of Satan, therefore, has always been to destroy the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and thereby frustrate the divine plan for redemption of mankind. This is a foundational principle for understanding 4,000 years of human history. Listen, before Christ was born, Satan tried to wipe out the race so there would be no Messiah. He's going to try it here. He tried it in other places. He tried to destroy the Jewish people so that there would be no Messiah to come and bring universal blessing to the world. And after Messiah was born... Satan didn't stop in retaliation and vengeance, and he's going to persecute Israel, and, as we, and, he's, and he's doing it today, and he always has done it. And as we move closer to the tribulation period, I think we're going to see such hostility towards Jewish people and the nation of Israel like we in this country have never seen before. We have never seen before. And I think out of that is one of, one of the great reasons why the Jewish nation is going to sign a peace treaty with the Antichrist. They'll need help from anyone. Satan hates God, and, me, and it means he hates God's program, and he hates God's plan, and he hates God's people. And that means anti-Semitism. It means hatred against Christians too. But there is such a vengeance that Satan has towards the nation of Israel that we need to understand that. And we need to understand what's behind this with, with Haman. But I'll tell you what, the good news is that providence sees ahead and God is, gonna, God is going to protect his people. He's protected them. He will protect them as we'll see in Esther. And he will continue to protect them in spite of the things that the editorials speak of. And he will protect them during the tribulation. In fact... The Bible says at the end of the tribulation, Messiah comes back to Jerusalem. And the word is, hold on, Jerusalem, a little bit longer. Your Redeemer comes to save you. Let's bow for prayer. Do you understand God's providence in your life? God doesn't only work in the nation of Israel. God doesn't only work in the Middle East. God is at work in your life. Do you understand his providence? Do you understand that he that keeps Israel keeps you also. And do you understand that, that God is using and even controlling the little things? Are you thankful for the little things in your life? The heartaches, the problems, the disappointments. Can you thank God for them right now? Because you're thankful for a God who's in control. I trust that, that God's word is, has met your heart tonight. 
And you can be thankful for those things and you can rejoice that we have a God who sees all, knows all, plans all, and fulfills his will all the time. Father, we pray that you'll help us to learn from the book of Esther. Help us to understand that providence is the way you work today. You preserve your people through providence. And Lord, in spite of the fact that many hate Israel, may we as as Bible-believing Christians love the Jewish people and the nation of Israel. Lord, may we have a balanced love. May we have a heart burden not only for their salvation, but for our neighbor's salvation too. But yet we understand that, that at the center of your program and plan is the tiny nation of Israel. Lord, we pray that you help us. If days get dark in, in, in the days to come, help us to continue taking a stand, even if it costs something. Help us as a church to proclaim where we stand, regardless of the consequences. And Father, I, I rejoice, and I pray this on behalf of all of us here. I rejoice in the fact that no matter what Satan does, you're greater. You see ahead, and you'll use even the, the incredible mad genius of Satan to turn those things around to use for your glory and honor. Be glorified, Lord, in all that, that we do. And even as we teach the word, may, may your word just change our lives, Lord. We're studying this magnificent book. As we go from here, Lord, uh, may the, the study of the word this, this day burn in our hearts. Help us, Lord, to focus on the word. Help us as we leave from here not to forget what we've studied. It's been good to be in God's people today, good to study the word, good to be refreshed by it. Help us, Lord, this week to dwell in sweet communion with you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. It's a war that has raged for thousands of years. Since the time that God promised Abraham that he would bless all the world through his descendants, Satan has tried to destroy those descendants and, along with them, the promise of a blessing. As God revealed more and more of his plan to raise up a savior and a king from the people of Israel, Satan's determination became even greater. For many generations, he was able to deceive them into destroying themselves, leading them into pagan idol worship that warranted the judgment of God. Yet, God always preserved them. Through wars, famines, pestilence, through captivity and exile, God made certain that a remnant of the nation remained through whom he could fulfill his promises. Finally, when the time was just right, God sent forth his son Jesus to be born of a Jewish virgin and be raised by a Jewish carpenter. He lived and ministered in Israel, teaching in the temple and observing the Jewish laws and customs. When Satan succeeded in stirring up the leaders against Jesus and arranged for his betrayal and crucifixion, Satan may have thought that he had succeeded in halting God's plan. But Jesus rose again from the dead, and it became evident that God had intended all along that his holy servant should be offered as a sacrifice for the sins of all mankind. Satan had played right into God's hand. This terrible miscalculation did not cause Satan to quit, though. Knowing that his time is short and that mankind continues to march toward its final God-appointed destiny, Satan has responded to his defeat by Christ by lashing out in spite and anger toward the people of God. Christians have suffered, it is true, but Satan knows that each of them that perishes goes to dwell with God forever. So he has continued to assault the people of Israel, most of whom have never received their true Messiah and King. 
He seeks to destroy them out of spite toward God and with hopes that he might still be able to thwart God's ultimate plans for mankind. So it is in the context of this cosmic struggle that the story of Esther takes place. Haman is just one of a long line of men that Satan has used in his efforts to destroy the people of God. And as was the case at the cross, God will use Satan's efforts to actually advance his purposes and bring blessing to his people. Now, Steve, we know that Satan has always tried to destroy Israel and that we as Christians should have no part in that. But it seems that some Christians believe we should support the modern state of Israel in practically every point. Is that a proper Christian response? That is a great question. I think there are some uh, evangelical Christians who would say yes, but I would say no. We have to recognize Israel is a secular state. And as such, they make decisions that I don't think we can say we can endorse all of them. I think what we, we are saying, certainly, is that we endorse their right to exist and exist peacefully without having to fear being uh, attacked just because they are Jewish people. So I don't endorse everything Israel does, but I uh, endorse their right to exist as the people of God in the land that God gave them. And we want to remind our listeners that you have written a book on the topic of God's enduring care for Israel. It's entitled God's Plan for Israel and is based on the lessons that the Apostle Paul gave on the topic when he wrote to the believers in Rome. This book is a good companion resource for our current study in Esther, but it will also help to answer many questions regarding God's dealings with Israel now and in the future. To order Steve's book, God's Plan for Israel, please give us a call at 727 727- Two three nine zero three zero six. When you call, you can also order this message on audio CD. The CD will include the entire sermon in one single audio file. Simply ask for sermon number one one zero three. The plot of Haman. Well, there's still. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.